Paul Borthwick is a pastor in a church in New England, and he wrote an excellent book called Great Commission, Great Compassion. And in that book, he wrote about one of his church members, a young man by the name of Peter, who uh, worked at McDonald's there, and uh, Borthwick said this. He said, I stopped into a McDonald's in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I noticed Peter working the counter. Uh, I had recognized him uh, from our young adult ministry at church, and I knew he had just graduated from Harvard University with a master's degree. So I greeted him and managed to get him to break free for some coffee and uh, when we were together there at the table Paul Borthwick looked at him and said what are you doing here knowing that a Harvard master's degree student usually don't aspire to work the counter at McDonald's and he smiled and said well I graduated in May um, but I've been four months without finding a job in my field and so I said well I do need some income uh, to pay bills, so here's where I am, at least for now. And Paul Borthwick remembers saying, well, I'm so sorry, uh, you know, this has to be hard, and Peter cut him off, don't, don't, I'm not sorry. God has put me here. This place has given me some awesome opportunities to share my faith. He said, I'm on, I'm on a shift that includes a Buddhist from Sri Lanka, a Muslim from Lebanon, a Hindu from India, and a fellow Christian from El Salvador. It's awesome. I get to be a global missionary to my coworkers while asking, would you like fries with that? <laughs> and they laughed. And, and then later, Paul Borthwick wrote, Peter found himself in a setting he never would have chosen as part of his long-term plan, but his kingdom perspective caused him to see himself as a sent person, and it shaped the way he viewed his circumstances, and it shaped the way he saw the people around him. Paul Borthwick, Great Commission, Great Compassion. Excellent book. And, and Peter's story is a perfect case study about what we're talking uh, about at Windsor Road here. We're in a series uh, called So the World Will Know. If this is your first Sunday here, my name's Randy. I'm privileged to be the lead minister here at the church. And uh, the last six months of 2016, our staff and our elders uh, really began praying and thinking through the next two years uh, in our church family. And how we, we asked the question, you know, what do we need to lean into uh, to express our church's vision of life change in Christ? Our vision as a church is about being a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ. And so we asked the question, okay, what does that look like? And so we came up with this theme of so the world will know, and we want to pay attention to three initiatives. And so each of the sermons here uh, in this month has been about these emphasis, starting with kingdom perspective. And when we say kingdom perspective, we're thinking about the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians who said, our citizenship is in heaven. 
And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. Kingdom citizenship, our primary identity. We have other identities, but our primary identity, and for Paul, who was a Roman citizen, his citizenship in heaven, though, was primary. And so he would only use his Roman citizenship if and when it advanced the cause of Christ. And if he sensed in his spirit that utilizing his Roman citizenship would not advance the cause of Christ, he would waive his rights as a Roman citizen because he realized that his citizenship, the realm in which he is going to be living his forever is more important than the here and the now. Our citizenship is in heaven. And, and that takes discipline to see this world in such a way. And especially for us Americans because we're just so used, we're liberty-loving Americans and we like our privacy and we like our independence and, and some of those qualities are di diametrically opposed to to the virtue of submitting ourselves to the emperor of heaven and earth, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship, though, is in heaven. That, that's, that's not will be or may be or might be. It is. It's a reality that we now have. We talked about kingdom perspective. And when we have that kingdom perspective, we then have a unity and a oneness unlike the world has ever seen. And so we talked about that last week, didn't we? We went to the book of Psalms where we looked at the Psalms of Ascent, God's people gathering in worship uh, in, on God's holy mountain in Jerusalem uh, 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 where, where uh, the temple would be built under Solomon. And, and we realized that we're not only just citizens, but we're priests. That's right. In Christ, you are a priest. We are a kingdom of priests. And a priest is a go-between. A priest is a mediator. A priest is a bridge builder. And so it is our calling, our vocation, vocare, to call. It is our vocation to fulfill our calling as a priest, representing our king before the world and mediating his presence uh, the presence of peace. And so we were challenged, weren't we, last week when, when we said, you know, do I bring peace with me into whatever room I enter? Classroom, boardroom, surgery room, the workroom, homeroom, dining room, kitchen room? Do, do I bring peace with me? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. What follows you? What, what do you leave in your wake? Is it peace? Is it chaos? See, a priest, it takes a priest to make peace. That's what we learned, wasn't it? And it takes a, a congregation of priests to impact a community in the name of Christ for peace that's our calling here so you're a citizen you're that's your primary identity you're you're a, a priest that's your primary identity and then this week this week we are going to talk about this vocation of ambassadorship 
that we represent the king to the world where we live. And that leads us to fearless evangelism. Kingdom perspective, relentless unity, fearless evangelism. And I think about that phrase, fearless evangelism, and I wonder, is there such a thing? Fearless evangelism? Is there such a thing? <laughs> because I don't know about your world, but in my world and in my experiences, I just sometimes I just shudder, you know, at, at, at the idea of sharing my faith because, you know, well, I don't want to be rejected. I, I want you to like me. Do you like me? How are we doing? How are we doing here? I got to check my... Facebook page, see the like, wait a minute, I don't have one. I'll look at my wife's. I'll feel better through hers, right? So, but we, I, you know, that's how I, that's how I get, right? And, and, and so if I, if I were to risk sharing my faith, what if I'm rejected or what if I'm, what if I'm ostracized or what if I'm ignored or what if I'm asked a question that I can't answer? Or, you know, what if, um, what if they push back and say, oh, you're just a Christian. You just think Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Nobody, you think everybody else is going to hell but you. And, and, and Muslims are going to hell and Hindus are going to hell and Buddhists are going to hell. Everybody else is going to hell. You're not because you're right because you just think you're right. Right, 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 right. And, and, you, know, and, and you listen to that and it's like, <laughs> I'm melting away, away, right? Well, it's easy to get caught flat-footed. And then you get that deer-in-the-headlight look and, that's why I say, fearless evangelism, is there such a thing? Yes, there actually is. And I want you to see what that looks like in today's scripture. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, and you'll find that on page uh, 1016 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, we really would uh, love it if you could just take a copy, put your name in it, and uh, take it home with you as a gift from Windsor Road. First uh, Peter 3, 13 through 18. And the Apostle Peter, one of the 12 apostles, the Apostle Peter, coaches us toward fearlessness in our faith and sharing our faith and, and, and doing so in a winsome, articulate manner. And as we look at these verses, we're going to deal with three questions. And the first question is, what did these verses mean to those who first heard them? All right? What did these, first, what did these verses mean to, the, to, the, to our brothers and sisters in Christ who lived 2,000 years ago and, and in their situation? And then the second question is, you know, what do they mean now to us? And what principles can we extract from these verses that apply to us today? And then thirdly, what would that look like in real life? All right? So it's kind of a what, so what, now what uh, trajectory. But first we read 1 Peter 3, 13 through 18. Follow along with me. The Apostle Peter writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. 
yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. This is God's Word. So how did those who first heard these verses, what was their situation? What did these verses mean to Christian brothers and sisters living 2,000 years ago? Well, these verses were written around the year A.D. 63-64. And the Apostle Peter wrote these verses from Rome, the capital of the empire. Nero was the emperor in Rome at the time. Glance over to 1 Peter 5, 13. It's just on the other page. And you'll hear this phrase, you'll read this phrase in verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Who's that? That is the Christian community in Rome. Well, then why does it say Babylon? Because that's a symbolic term. That's code for Rome. If you recall, Babylon was the place where God's people were sent into exile in the Old Testament. And what Peter is trying to say is that there is a sense in which God's people uh, in the first century are experiencing a kind of exile, meaning that where they are living is not their final destination, uh, but they are living in a different culture with a different worldview, with a different belief system, and in which God's people feel like they're outsiders. And thus it feels like exile. And I don't know about you, but I kind of feel that way today. In the span of the last 70 years, our culture has moved from a culture in which the, the influencing institutions went from supporting the Judeo-Christian culture to now a post-Christian, somewhat hostile to Christianity culture. And so I, in some ways, I kind of feel like I'm in exile. I mean, here's what I mean by that. So like 70 years ago, uh, 60, 70 years ago, uh, Peter Drucker, who was a business guru, uh, told how surprised he was when he moved to the New York City area in the 1950s. He went there to teach at New York University, and so he went to the bank to take out a mortgage to buy a house. And so at the bank, the loan officer asked him if he went to church or synagogue. And this surprised Peter Drucker. 
who was from Austria. And Peter Drucker asked, well, why is that a relevant question? And this is what he was told in the 1950s. Well, why would we trust a man who didn't go to church or synagogue? I, you know, I can't fathom that question being on the table at a bank today, can you? I think it's kind of illegal. But that was then, and so this is now, and over the decades, kind of the main cultural institutions have really stopped supporting Christianity, and many Christians feel seriously out of place in their own society, and it, it can feel like Babylon. I can feel like Babylon. Well, that was Peter's world. Rome was his Babylon. And Nero was emperor of Rome when Peter wrote these verses. What was that like? Well, I found out. So I got online and I downloaded a history book written by one of the most famous Roman historians, a guy by the name of Suetonius, Suetonius, and he wrote, his most famous history book uh, was written in the year uh, A.D. 121. It's called The Twelve Caesars. And it was a survey of just the major Caesars up to the time of you know, the writing of his book. The Twelve Caesars. It's his most famous history book. And you can download it if you want. Uh, I'd rather you not do it right now. But if you can download it, you, and you know what? It'll, it, you can do it for 99 cents. Now think about that. If you're the premier historian uh, and write the best-selling book, no matter how good it is, 2,000 years from now, it'll be worth 99 cents. <laughs> and Suetonius wrote about Nero, who lived to be 31, uh, and he ruled 14 of those years, which means he came, became emperor at 17. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> and here's why. This is from the pen of Suetonius. Petulancy, lewdness, luxury, avarice, and cruelty he practiced at first with reserve and in private as if prompted to them only by the folly of youth. But even then, the world was of opinion that they were the faults of his nature and not of his age. So, so Nero was really just evil and at first people thought, well, maybe he's just because he's 17. That's why he's acting in this, these evil ways. And then they figured out, no, it's not because he's 17, it's because he's just evil. You know? Uh, he murdered his mother. He murdered his mother. He, he had several botched attempts at murdering his mother. He, he tried to do it in a sneaky way. Like he put her on a boat but the boat was deliberately made rickety so that she would then you know drown and that she survived and then like 
he put her in this guest room and made it so that the roof would just fall on her and she survived. And he was trying to be really sneaky and it wasn't like she was stupid either. And finally, he just got so frustrated, he just said, well, just go kill her. That's how he was. Uh, He was a sexual pervert. Uh, Nero discovered that it was just much more enjoyable uh, to uh, gamble and uh, uh, live a licentious life and uh, just host uh, music and instead of running the country. And so he would host these musical concerts for hours on end. Hours. But once you were invited to one of those concerts, you couldn't leave. If you left before he left, you'd die. So Suetonius writes, you know, these concerts were so long that women gave birth to children in the middle of these concerts. And, you know, Men would fake heart attacks just to be taken out, you know. I mean, he never wore the same garment twice, right? And then this is what Suetonius says. Nero had an insatiable, these are his words, uh, Suetonius' own words. Nero had an insatiable desire to immortalize his name. And then that leads to Peter's world. Suetonius wrote, among the excesses of Nero's reign are to be mentioned the horrible cruelties exercised against the Christians in various parts of the empire. They were covered with the skins of wild beasts and torn by dogs. They were crucified and set on fire that they might serve for lights in the nighttime. Now, that was Peter's world. And that was the world in which Peter was calling his brothers and sisters in Christ, his church family, to fearlessly share their faith. Now, how how do we do that? How do we fearlessly share the story of Christ? Well, according to the Apostle Peter, it does not begin with technique doesn't start with technical presentation skills of sharing the gospel. That's later, but what comes first is your heart. Verses 14 and 15. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Fearless Christianity begins with the heart, and Peter learned everything about the heart from Jesus. He learned from Jesus that your heart is the operating system of your life. He learned that you live out of your heart. He learned that your heart is why you do what you do. Your heart is why you feel what you feel. Your heart is why you say what you say. Your heart guides your thoughts and your reasons. And the condition of your heart will always affect how you see, how you hear, and the words that you speak. Your heart affects what you see. And if your heart is hard, you will be spiritually blind. If your heart is hard, you will be spiritually deaf. If your heart is hard, that hardness will eventually come out of your mouth 
Peter was there when Jesus said in Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Peter learned this and he learned that the heart was made to pursue one end and that's the Lord. Your heart was made for Christ. And when your heart honors Christ, when your heart loves Christ, when your heart has single-minded focus upon Christ, when your heart has only one person to please, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Caesar over heaven and earth, then and only then is your heart living according to its design. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Holy, honor, holy. When Peter says this, he's talking about a holy awe, an, a reverent awe, a, an awesome fear, not a cowering fear, but an awesome fear, an amazed fear in the living Christ. And Peter experienced this awe. He experienced awe in Christ. He was in awe when Christ taught. He was in awe when Christ worked miracles. He was in awe when Christ was transfigured on the mountain. And Peter was in awe of the empty tomb. Verse 14 is about a heart that's been flooded with awe in Christ. Is this the Christ you know? Do you know that this Christ is full of grace and full of truth? Do you know that he's good but not tame? Do you know that he's um, unpredictable and yet full of mystery? That he's unchanging and yet always brand new? And does he awaken you with the vision that your life matters? Those whose hearts have been flooded with awe in Christ have a settled belief that the Christ they know is worth knowing. And their heart says, well, of course everyone I know would want this type of relationship with God. And furthermore, when my heart is flooded with awe in Christ, the crucified Christ, the resurrected Christ, the exalted Christ, when my heart is flooded with that level and quality and quantity of awe, then, then what, what, can peop, what can man do to me? I mean, if it's really true that there's this world and then the world to come, and it is, if it's really true that this world is a dot and we're living in the dot, but we're living for the line of eternity, and that is true, and if it's really true that our destiny it's not a dead end in a cemetery, but our destiny is a resurrected body on a resurrected earth, worshiping and serving a resurrected Christ. Then what can man do to me, Peter says. Yeah. No wonder, verse 13 says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And, and Peter's not saying that if you serve Christ, no one will be there to harm you. No, he's saying that it's inevitable. They, they can kill you, but they can't harm you. Because uh, I'm living for the line. I'm not, I don't have to survive this world. 
are persecuted, Peter says. You will be blessed, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Where did he get that? Got that from Jesus. Matthew 11 and 12. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and say, speak all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward. Your reward's great. And what is that reward? The reward is Jesus. Jesus is the reward. Knowing Jesus more, loving Jesus more, serving Jesus more, singing about Jesus more, honoring Jesus more, becoming like Jesus more and more, finding more joy, more peace, uh, more courage in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate reward for a heart who sets him apart as Lord. Jesus is the ultimate reward. So is Jesus your idea of a great reward? Well, when your heart is flooded with that, here it is. This is our big idea. This is what I want you to walk away with from these verses. If you don't learn anything else, when your heart is flooded with awe of Christ, it will fearlessly share the story of Christ. When your heart is flooded with awe of Christ, it will fearlessly share the story of Christ. Awe of Christ, a holy awe. I've never met anyone so splendid, so strong, so graceful, so truthful, so lion-like, so lamb-like. I never said Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by Him. I never said that. He said that. He said that. So the question really is, do you believe what he said? And the follow-up question is, what would make you believe that? What would make you believe, yes, he's right, he is right? And are you ready to talk about it when the question gets put on the table? Now we get to the content and the tone of verse 15 and 16. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that's in you. That's the content right there. Give a reason. That's content, but then there's tone, right? Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. The content has to do with, well, you know, why do you believe what you believe about Christianity? And how... How does that look like in the story of your life? How does that look like in the story of your life? Because people, people live by stories, right? And so there are different stories that people tell. There's the story of individualism. And that story says, I am the center of the universe. There's the story of consumerism, a story which says, well, I am what I own. I am what I own. There's the story of moral relativism, which says, well, we really can't know absolute truth. There's the story of scientism and naturalism. And notice I said scientism, not science. Two totally different uh, words. Scientism is a philosophy. Naturalism is a philosophy that basically says all that matters is matter. It's a closed system, uh, nothing outside of the system. There's New Ageism, which is everybody's a God. There's postmodern tribalism, which says all that matters is what my little group thinks. 
See, all of these are stories that people live in. What's your story? What's your story? What's the story about how Christ has become king of your heart? And that's the story we need to be ready to tell. Always be ready. But here's the deal. And please pay attention. The quality of your life always precedes the content of your faith story. The quality of your life. So you, re- you reach out to a neighbor and you offer to take care of their mail while they're on vacation and you, you mow their lawn and you do that because you're a good neighbor when they're sick and you know, they need some help, you offer that help because good neighbors watch out for one another and you're likable. And if you want to share Jesus with your neighbor, but they could never imagine being like you or loving like you or serving like you, that's not good. The quality of your life always precedes the content of your faith story. So you just love them, no strings attached. And then you get simple. You know, like, Letting them know you go to church. And just leave it at that. You know, our church has this really fun playroom. And, and you know, we, we are able to take our children there for, you know, an hour and, you know, have fun. There's a cafe area. And, and my granddaughter gets to hang out there for an hour. And she loves it. And I love it. And it's great. And then let it go at that. And you might tell that to four people and only one will just follow up, you know. And that's okay. But your verbal witness, your verbal witness needs to be complemented by uh, a witness of deed. So you have word ministry and deed ministry. And they go together. Because if all you're trying to do is just word ministry, then, then you know, they're going to think that you're just trying to recruit them. Or you're just trying to increase your tribe. Or, or you're just trying to increase your power. But deed ministry, this, this, this ministry of just meeting needs with love, eventually can lead to the question, you know, why do you do this? And there's an open door. Why well, did I do this because of my faith? I do this because I'm a Christian. It, this is meaningful to my soul. And the Lord's helped me here in this area of my life. I'm not perfect. But he's giving me peace here in this. Really? How? I mean, what's, how, how did all this become important to you? Are you ready for that? Are you prepared when that question comes? And can you do it succinctly, you know, without, you know, dumping the whole truckload on them, you know? Can you? Well, now is where we talk about technique. And, and here's what I would propose. As we look to the New Testament, as we look to the book of Acts, so the Apostle Paul, whenever he told his personal story, it was, it was really like this. Before I met Christ, after I met Christ. That was his story. And so, so here's my story. Here's my story. My story is I grew up in a, I grew up in a Christian home. And my parents were believers, and they're very active in our local church. And, um, you know, we visited the church, and when we were new, the minister came to our home, and 
introduced himself and followed up and um, my mom still to this day shakes her head when she remembers my fifth grade ism when the minister was at the house. She said, you realize, do you remember when Brother Roy came to our house and what you were doing? I said, no, what was I doing? You had a cap gun, you were firing at him. (laughs) You know? Mom, had to be Rob or Rick, I know it wasn't me. That's not true, it was me. But we got connected to that local church. And then I remember when our family visited the minister's office for a family Bible study. And here's what that Bible study went like. It was something like this. We learned this. Jesus said, Jesus said, this is how God is going to rescue the world. My life will break and God will mend this broken world. My heart will tear apart and your hearts will soon heal. I won't be with you long. Soon you will be very sad, but God's helper will come, and then you're going to be filled with a forever happiness that won't ever leave. Don't be afraid. You're my friends. I love you. It's a true story, a story of death and resurrection, a story of judgment and love, a story of being lost and being found. It's the story of the old passing away and the new taking its place. And it's the one true story. It's the story of Jesus dying so that I don't have to die. Jesus being my substitute. See, Christianity is not do more, try harder. Christianity is I will give you. And Christianity is not if I obey, then God will love me. No, Christianity is because God has flooded me with his love, I can obey. And Christianity is not Jesus being written into my story. Christianity is Jesus writing me into his story. And I wanted that. So on May the 14th, 1972, I asked Jesus if he would put me into his forever story and if he would put me into his kingdom as a citizen, as a son, as an heir. And I've never looked back. And now I know who I am, and now I know why I am. That's my story. What's your story? What's yours? Homework. Homework. So, homework is between now and next week write out your story on a half a page which will be around 300 words okay um, because that's a, that's about how and, and that'll take about three to four minutes to speak that's about how long it just took me to tell you my story see because that's about really when you really get that opportunity that's about how long you have okay and I would like to challenge you. I'd like to ask you if you would, between now and next week, write out your story on a half a page, 300 words or less. And, um, and I would invite you, if you want, to email me your story. And um, I'd be happy to just look it over 
and you know, maybe offer a, a tweak here and there. Now, if you send me a 600 word, I'll send it back, okay? Because I'm, I'm a, I, I teach adjunct at Urbana Theological Seminary, so I got my professor hat on, so, so 300, you know, okay? So you might start at 600, but thin it out to 300 and then send it. And, and um, if I cannot personally evaluate every single one that comes in, our, we have a staff, and our directional leadership team, uh, I can't think of anything more exciting. Can you, Katie, than for us to, to just spend a, a couple of hours just listen to these stories, okay? And, and because we'd like to, sh- and it'd be great to, sh- to share these stories, you know, every single one of them. So, so my email is, here it is, randy at windsorroad.org. That's pretty simple. Randy at windsorroad.org. Got it? Get it? When I say get it, you say got it, I'll say good. Get it? Good. All right. Listen, opportunities come to those who are prepared. Opportunities come to those who are prepared. So if you're thinking, well, I'll wait until the event comes and then I'll maybe wing it. That's not what Peter says. Right? But when you are prepared, those doors, those doors can open. So always be prepared. Always. What if a thousand of us were prepared? Think about that. What if a thousand of us? What if we were ready at a moment's notice to share our story? 1 Peter 5 says, She who is in Babylon sends greetings. Remember, Babylon was not a weekend excursion. It was a 70-year period of time. So you got to take the long view. So we're going to be here a while. What if we developed friendships? What if we sharpened our story? And then what if when we gather on Sunday in the lobby and in the cafe, our conversations included like, wow, I had this opportunity come my way to share my story and here is how it went. And then what if others heard your story and saw the quality of your life and said, I want that. I want that. I want to live like that. I want to worship the God you know. Please introduce me to that God. And then what if they came here and grew here? And then what if this community, this university, was known for story after story of life change in Christ. I'm telling you, what if every day we lived as though we actually believed that, that our parents and our grandparents, our children, our grandchildren, our coworkers, our neighbors would be better off knowing who Christ is. And if they lived in holy awe of a heavenly Father who has an eternal supply of wisdom and counsel and guidance and their life would be better to be on the receiving end of that as citizens, as priests, as ambassadors, as heirs. I'll say it one more time. When your heart is flooded with the awe of Christ, it will fearlessly share the story of Christ. And the quality of your life always precedes the content of your faith story. And opportunities come to those who are prepared.
poet wrote, I stand by the door. I neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It's the door through which people walk when they find God. And there is no use my going way inside and staying there when there are so many still outside. And they, as much as I, crave to know where the door is. And all that so many ever find is only the wall where the door ought to be. They creep along the wall like the blind with outstretched groping hands, feeling for a door, knowing there must be a door, and yet they never find it, so I stay by the door. The most tremendous thing in the world is for us to find that door, the door to God. And the most important thing that anyone can do is to take hold of one of those blind groping hands and put it on a latch, the latch that only clicks and opens to the touch of faith. People die outside the door as starving beggars die on cold nights in cruel cities in the dead of winter. They die for want of what is within their grasp. But inside, on the other side, they live. They live, and nothing else matters compared to helping them find it and open it and walk in and find him. So I stand by the door.